Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 6, 17 through 26. This is what Holy Scripture says. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. You've heard it many times and probably said it to yourself. That wasn't what I expected. Perhaps... Uh, describing your first eating experience at a new restaurant or the blind date you went on Friday night. It could be your first time seeing the opera or maybe the last time you saw a Quentin Tarantino movie. This week I read a young lady's account of her first full-time job after graduating from college. She had accepted an admissions counselor position with a private university. But when she arrived on her first day for work, she was led to a storage room, handed a phone, a sales script, and a list of phone numbers. It turns out she had inadvertently accepted a job as a cold caller. And that first day, she was left asking or saying to, her, to herself, this is not what I expected. And I imagine that's what the disciples of Jesus were saying to themselves on a daily basis as they watched their rabbi teach and interact with the crowds. And I bet that's exactly what they were thinking here in what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. Now you'll notice if you have your Bible open to, to Luke 6 in the verses leading up to our passage, we're told that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And we're told that he, the next day, came down with his disciples, a large group of disciples, and stood on a level place. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Now, you hear these words and it's likely they sound very familiar. And if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, it should sound familiar. There at the beginning of chapter 5 in Matthew, 
Jesus, we're told, went up on the mountain. He sat down with his disciples and he began to taught them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we compare the two accounts, notice what we find. Luke describes Jesus standing on a level place. Matthew describes Jesus standing on a mountain. Luke records Jesus' words as, blessed are the poor. Matthew records, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, if we were to compare both sermons, Matthew's is much longer than Luke's. And uh, if we were to look at them in their entirety, and I would encourage you to do that, uh, you'll see that the two accounts are very similar and yet different enough that many scholars debate whether they describe the same sermon or different teaching moments in the life of Jesus. Personally, I tend to believe that this is the same sermon, but each gospel writer is giving uh, their divinely inspired perspective on what Jesus is teaching us. For example, I believe Jesus indeed was on a level place, but it was within a mountainous area. And so that's why both Matthew and Luke can be recording accurately what happened. But even if they're different sermons, Jesus had the same audience in mind. His disciples. The sermon specifically addresses Jesus' disciples. And I imagine the response of the disciples when they heard this sermon was the same. They had to be thinking to themselves, this isn't what I expected. Today we're only covering the first portion of the Sermon on the Plain, but what I plan to do is to work through this story and highlight just a few ideas that I think are important. This isn't a three-point sermon, uh, which I sometimes do. Uh, today we're simply drawing out some important ideas and application from what we read in the story. If I were to highlight an overall theme that I want you guys to leave with, it's this idea that being a disciple of Jesus isn't what you expect. Now you may have noticed I'm using the term disciple. I am not using the term Christian. Now the reason I'm not using the term Christian is, one, it's not in the story. Uh, but two, unfortunately, the word Christian is layered with meaning today that leads to a lot of misunderstanding. It's not that I don't ever use the term Christian to apply to myself or to others. I'm simply drawing a distinction that there's a difference between a disciple and a Christian. For some, it's the same thing, but for many, it's not. Uh, Leah Ball is a writer online. Uh, she said this about the misunderstandings that come with the term Christian. Listen to what she says. It's kind of a long quote. I've had enough conversations with various people in and outside the U.S. to know that there is not a universal definition of Christian. I'll never forget hearing that in some parts of the world, Christian means an arrogant, morally corrupt, manipulative Westerner. In other places, it means someone who is generally a good person and goes to church a couple times a year. 
Others define it as someone who believes in Jesus, attends Mass in confession, and accepts the Pope as the head of the church. Yet others identify Christian with the coercive global power that invaded countries and subjected them to colonization and severe abuse, all in the name of Jesus. Do you see her point? In the world today, being a Christian is a cultural, even a political label, more than a religious one. And unfortunately, the same thing, I think, has happened with the phrase or term evangelical. Uh, Just today, this morning, I read on the Atlantic website, Alan Jacobs, a professor of humanities at Baylor University, wrote an article entitled, Evangelical Has Lost Its Meaning. And he's arguing, uh, you know, at one point in time, evangelical meant something like this. A born-again Protestant who cherishes the Bible as the Word of God and who emphasizes a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. He's saying that used to be how people view and understood what an evangelical was. Today, however, Jacob argues, the larger American culture sees evangelicals differently. Today, an evangelical Christian, according to the Pew Research Center, is a God and country believer. Basically, almost all evangelicals are white, may or may not attend church, may not be interested or even aware of what traditionally evangelicals have believed. But this they know, they believe in God, they believe in America, and they love our current president's willingness to be blunt with the cultural elite. Now, I'm not bringing this up to make a political statement. I'm simply pointing out that, unfortunately, being evangelical has become a political statement. And it's leading to devastating misunderstandings of what it means to be a Christian in America today. Now, Think, let's do a little bit of uh, trivia here. Where is the first place the term Christian shows up in the Bible? Acts 11, right. In Antioch, the church in Antioch. Um, Apparently, so many people were coming to Christ in the city of Antioch in Acts 11 that the local people, and they were likely Gentiles, coined a new name for the followers of Jesus. Now, we know for sure it wouldn't have been Jews who used this name for these followers of Jesus because Jews believed Christ. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about how Christ meant anointed one, Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. So they would definitely, a Jew definitely would not have used that term Christian. But we also know that the disciples themselves probably didn't use that name for themselves. Uh, the, The Apostle Paul never uses the word in his letters. He refers to followers of Jesus as saints, believers, brethren. He doesn't use the term Christian. And so we don't have to be tied to the name. And it's important to acknowledge how complicated it's become even using the term today. Now, it's not only misunderstood in the surrounding culture, it's also misunderstood within the church. And some of you think of yourselves as Christians, 
but not as disciples of Jesus. And I want you today to wrestle with the difference. What's the difference? Could, I mean, you could believe you're a Christian for cultural reasons, for political reasons, or simply because your parents are Christians. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this point is I want you to wrestle with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, not a Christian. Or as some people like to call it today, a follower of Jesus. Now we're told in the story that Jesus gathered his disciples together. But what did it mean to be a disciple in Jesus' day? It's interesting to note that Luke's Greek word that he uses for disciple, you don't find it in the Old Testament and you don't find it in the epistles. But it appears here that a disciple was used to describe someone who at that point in time was following Jesus. We're told this big crowd of people, disciples, were following Jesus. They were listening to his teachings and they were seeking his healing. Did you notice that there in verses 17 through 19? Notice how it's described there. This great crowd of his disciples, and they're going, they're listening to his teaching, and they're looking to be healed. Two reasons why they're following him. Now, we pastors today, we like to complain about consumer culture in the church. Uh, we like to talk about how people just want to come and hear a good sermon and be entertained and be served and then leave. Well, it's a little surprising, isn't it, to see that consumer culture was, was evident even in the first century. Right? They just wanted to hear a good sermon. And they just wanted Jesus to heal their diseases. And we're told that Jesus did just that. He did it with many, many people. And so the disciples described here are people who are following Jesus, listening to his teaching, looking to be healed. And so I want you to stop for a moment and just think about that. Let's highlight that point. I think that's a great starting point for what it means to be a disciple. Being a, a disciple, at the very least, involves following Jesus, listening to his teaching, and seeking his healing. And so now's our chance to be real. Now's our chance to speak hard truth. You could be a Christian today. And not do any of those things. Not follow Jesus. Not listen to his teaching. Not seek his healing. And now's our chance to get really real. That's true for some of you here. It's true for some of you. You call yourself a Christian. But you aren't following Jesus. You aren't listening to his teaching. And you're not seeking to be healed. But what we notice as we read the rest of the story, that that isn't where being a disciple of Jesus ends. It, that, it, that isn't all it involves. We see, as Jesus goes into the sermon, he gives what is referred to as blessings and woes. By the way, I, you know, just a side note. You know, a lot of progressive Christians like to talk about Jesus. You know, they, they don't like angry Jesus or judgment Jesus. Um... And so I think they would read this and forget the woe part. Just focus on the be happy part. But Jesus was both. Jesus brought the judgment. I mean, it's right here. 
so there's blessings and woes. There's blessings and woes starting in verse 20. And I imagine the disciples in the crowd experienced this moment of surprise when he, say, when he said this. And they would have said, that's not what I expected him to say. Uh, because in the sermon, Jesus describes two groups of people. Notice, those whom God favors and those whom God doesn't favor. There's two groups. And notice the two groups of blessings and woes here in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you. And then Jesus pronounces the woes. But woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when people speak well of you. And what's interesting is when you take those two groups, they fit together. They fit together. Notice the blessings and the woes match up. Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Woe to you who are full now. Blessed are you who weep now. Woe to you who laugh now. And blessed are you when people hate you. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Now this would have been shocking to the crowd. Because the first group, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, those hated, Jesus is effectively saying the world's losers. That's the group you want to be in. Think about how shocking that is. Now, let's try to apply it to our context. How many parents in this room want that for your children? How many of you want your kids to be poor, hungry, weeping, and hated? No one. None of us. And you're lying if you say otherwise. And yet, that's the group God favors. And let's be honest, every parent in this room, we want our kids to be rich, well-fed, happy, and well thought of. But Jesus is warning those who are rich, well-fed, happy, and well thought of. It's the first group that Jesus says will be happiest in the long run, favored by God. Are you getting it now? <laughs> this isn't what you expected. It's not what I expected. And to be honest, it's not what I want. I don't think it's what the crowd wanted either. And the reason I believe that is because if you read the rest of the gospel story, Jesus continued to talk like this as he got closer and closer to Jerusalem. And as he drew nearer and nearer to the cross. And what we see happening is the large crowd of disciples start to dwindle. And those who were disciples decide to go home. And in fact, we're told in John's gospel at one point that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And I think that was the pattern. Jesus is telling them, teaching them. They're loving being healed, but then he starts telling them stuff like this, and they're like, oh, mm, no, 
I don't think I want to do that. And if I've done my job in preaching this text, some of you are coming to the realization today, this isn't what I expected. And some of you might turn your back and go home and not come back. But before making that decision, let's be clear about what Jesus is challenging us with here. The central core idea is this. It's not about if you have money or not, or food or not. Not truly, not really. To be a disciple of Jesus means that Jesus is your most treasured possession. To be a disciple of Jesus is to want him, to love him, to please him more than anyone else. And I think that becomes clearer on that last beatitude that in verse 23, when Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. In other words, because you love me more than your reputation. And you see, the reason Jesus blesses the poor, and I think what you know, Luke is, in, you know, he's intentionally saying the poor, where Matthew said poor in spirit. Matthew kind of spiritualizes it. Luke doesn't. And I think he's really trying to poke us. Because he knew that those who are financially poor, especially in Jesus' day, were desperate. I mean, it's more likely you're going to be really desperate. You're going to know what it is to be powerless. You're going to understand what it is to be in need. And the poor in Jesus' day, their hearts would have been much more fertile ground for the good news. Because Jesus wants his disciples to understand how much they need him. How much you need him. And the problem is the rich are too easily deceived by their comfort and their power and their resources. They don't really need God. God is kind of an add-on. If we have room in our life, we'll, we'll sneak God in. This is how the scholar Clinton Arnold puts it. It may be easier for the poor to be free from the tyranny of possessions. They can more readily place their lives in the hands of God. The lifestyle of the rich and famous, by contrast, feeds arrogance and self-sufficiency, which are dangerous for their spiritual health and eternal future. The rich fail to recognize that what they value is of no value at all. And so here's the question of the hour, my friends. Which group are you in? Are you the poor or are you the rich? Now, there's a helpful story in John 9, I think, that illustrates some of these themes for us. It's the story of a man who's been blind since birth. And he's healed by Jesus. And the Pharisees are bewildered by this. And so they're investigating the miracle. And they keep asking the man to explain, how did this happen? 
And the man who is healed, he starts to get frustrated that they keep asking him about it. And this is what he says to him. He says, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So the two groups here are represented, aren't they? The first group was the blind man. The poor man. The man with no social status. The man who was reviled. He becomes the disciple of Jesus. He finds life. He moves out of darkness into light. He sees. He's no longer blind. He sees reality as it really is. And that's often, I think, what the poor have, what Jesus is getting at. The poor see reality. They see they're not in control. And they see their need. They have a closer handle on truth, the way the world really is. Now, the second group, the wealthy religious leaders, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus they wanted Moses. And, who did, and what did Moses represent? Moses represented the law. They said, no, we want to be disciples of the law, of Moses. They didn't want grace. They didn't want mercy. They didn't want compassion. They wanted law because they believed they were sufficient. They believed they could do it. And they're so blind, aren't they? Their wealth, their status, their religiosity had blinded them to reality. They had no touch, no handle on truth because of all their possessions and all of their self-sufficiency. So I ask you, what about you? Do you see reality? Do you see the world as it truly is? Or have you been blinded? Now, later on in Luke 6, at verse 40, Jesus says this about being a disciple, being his disciple. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. That, in a nutshell, is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to actively seek to be like him. To actively seek to be like him. Now, let's, let's think for a moment. How did Jesus' life end up? <laughs> Poorest of the poor. No possessions. No social standing. No political power. He was beaten. He was humiliated. Hung on a cross. Naked. Left for all to see. Disgraced. If you're a follower of Jesus... That's who you're called to be like. Now, I know, I hope, I hope you're going, well, how do I do that? I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm just hopefully pointing you in the right direction to start asking the right questions. But you also might ask me, why would I ever want to do that? That's a great question. And the only answer we, can, we, we have is grace, the gospel. 
The only answer we have is the gospel. I mean, think with me. A moment in your life when you were most desperate, or think with me, the worst thing you've ever done, or the worst thing you've ever thought, imagine, friend, you're overwhelmed with the gravity of your brokenness, and your sin, and your guilt, and your shame, and imagine you're approaching Jesus. And as you approach him, you feel within yourself condemnation and fear and anxiety because you know you have failed. You know you have not lived up to the law or you know you are desperate and you have nowhere else to turn. And if these things you've done and these things you've said have ever, would ever become public, you know you would be judged, you would be outcast, and everyone would turn their backs on you. You just know that. And so you're approaching Jesus in this place of desperation. You're falling on your knees before him. And the emotional weight of it all is bearing down upon you. And you expect him to condemn you. You expect him to cast you out. You expect him to say, you're such a disappointment to me. But Jesus does the one thing you don't expect. You couldn't possibly expect. No one would expect. He picks you up. He looks you in the eye. He braces you and whispers in your ear, I love you. I forgive you. I'll never let you go. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us through your spirit to apply your truth to our hearts to be willing to ask ourselves hard questions give us the courage to see reality and to see things the way they truly are and Lord protect us from allowing our wealth, our status, our capabilities, <laughs> from deceiving us in thinking that we don't need you. We want to be a people who treasure you above all else and who are striving to be like you. Not because we have to earn your love, Lord Jesus, but because we have your love and we have been loved. Make us into your people. We pray in your precious name. Amen.